Hey, it's Steph Dixon, and welcome to the Live Wide Awake podcast. Thank you for being one of our listeners in 88 countries around the world. Today, we're speaking with Nina Simmons, the co-founder of Bioneers, a social entrepreneur who's passionate about reinventing leadership and co-creating a healthy, peaceful, and equitable world for all. In 2017, Nina Simmons received the Goy Peace Award with her husband and partner, Kenny Osabel, for pioneering work to promote nature-inspired innovations for restoring Earth and our human community. Past honorees include Bill Gates, James Lovelock, and Deepak Chopra. She's also the author of the award-winning book, Nature, Culture, and the Sacred, where she offers practical guidance and inspiration for anyone who aspires to grow into their unique form of leadership on behalf of positive change. In this episode, we talk about reinventing leadership, biomimicry, the importance of balance of the masculine and feminine, practical innovation, mobilizing diverse communities, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this smooth conversation. Thanks to our sound partner, Audio-Technica. Okay, it's time to live wide awake. Nina, thank you so much for joining us on the Live Wide Awake podcast today. I was such a pleasure reading about all of your work and I couldn't believe, you know, you've been doing and in this space for over 30 years. So I was so curious, like what first triggered you to want to get into this line of work in the first place? Well, you know, I had an arts background and a theater background, actually. But in spite of being the daughter of artists and growing up in a city, I learned at an early age that I really adored nature and that I went to nature whenever I needed solace. So I think part of what drew me into this space, my husband actually was given a grant almost out of the blue to have a conference. And at the time he said, why would I have a conference? It sounds boring. And the friend said, here's a grant, go make a conference. And Kenny came to me and said, will you help me do this? And he knew of my theater background And I also had never been to a conference, so neither of us had any unlearning to do. And we (laughs) created really a three-day ritual that was what we thought, what we found most interesting. And I just remember Steph sitting there the first time and hearing the people who were speaking, some of whom were Native peoples and people from all walks of life. And I just remember my mouth hanging open and thinking, These are the people I want to support with my communication skills. Their leadership and their innovation and their visions were so exciting to me. And so it kind of picked me up by the scruff of the neck. Some of it was about nature. Some of it was about how to live a good life and be a good human being. And all of that was kind of intoxicating to me, honestly. And I think when we first started, there was a feeling like, this community came together that had always wanted to find each other. But we could have been from outer space at that time. I mean, this was (laughs) 1990, and no one was talking about climate change yet, really, or few people. And few people were talking about models inspired by nature and biomimicry. But everyone there was so happy to find each other that I remember also feeling that This was a very diverse space where everyone seemed to belong and that that was also part of what really attracted me. 
Yeah, that's so beautiful. You were able to create and and bring all those people to the event and to create that space for community. And I love that you said that you could have been from outer space because that is literally what I was thinking. Like, you know, having these types of conversations back in the 90s, what was it like back then? And and was it challenging actually to build what you were trying to build? Did, did people like outside of the community be think you were crazy? Well, I'm sure they did. And, you know, truth be told, the first eight years we did this on top of our day jobs. We actually were not able to make any money at it. And mm. even as a nonprofit back in those days, you know, what we found was that we're unable to attract foundations to support us because we would look at their grant criteria and say, well, wouldn't it be a good thing if we fit all their criteria? You know, if we're about equity and, and environment and education and health, and you would think, but no, you know, no one was thinking systemically back then. So, so it was not a huge group of people the first years, and it was very much an act of love. And I think just at the point where we were ready to give up after eight years of slogging along, and really not, not only not being paid, but everyone being on a volunteer basis, that a donor came along and said, I want to help you grow this into an institution. So just on the verge of saying, we're done, you know, the universe stepped in with a, a beautiful gift. That's so interesting. And I started eight years ago, so I can't even imagine what it was like 30 years ago. But even eight years ago in Singapore, it was like a real challenge. You know, people didn't get it. Everyone thought I was going to become a, a hemp wearing hippie. <laughs> and like they had all these stereotypes that I had to break to be like, no guys, sustainability is really sexy. It's incredible, yeah. the stuff that's happening. <laughs> and it was this like so slow slog and now people get it and now it's exciting and now it's mainstream. But yeah, it's been a it's been a crazy journey. So like over the 30 years, I can't even, you know, I've just been doing it for eight, so. <laughs> well, and as you... As you say, you know, there's a feeling of like the world catches up to you, you know, and we we have a joke around our house that it's good to be ahead of the curve, like five minutes ahead of the curve. You know, exactly. if you're if you're years ahead of the curve, you know, yeah, it's not tough. so great. It is <laughs> not for the it's faint so of true. heart. No, yeah. absolutely. And so yeah. I guess during this time, you would have discovered a lot about your true self. And I think you talk about that quite quite a lot through the, your different work as well. So where has your personal journey taken you? Oh, gosh. Well, <laughs> I'm someone who for many years was very apologetic about how many things I was interested in. And it's only recently that I'm actually making peace with that and recognizing that it's a strength, not a hindrance. You know, my personal journey has taken me through a gender lens. When I discovered when I was about age 40, what a difference being a woman had made to my life experience and my professional life. And I began investigating leadership, which Bioneers was tremendously helpful in informing me about, and how... We're all reinventing how leadership is practiced and understood. So I, I sort of, I got named for my leadership in a magazine and I found that I didn't like it at all. And uh, really, yeah, I didn't feel like I had earned the title. I felt like it painted a target on my back. 
and I wanted to repel it. And yet I had learned from Bioneers that the earth is calling us all to be leaders now, each in our own way. And I thought, well, if I have this reaction to being named a leader, then what's wrong with this picture? Because we need a definition of leadership that everyone can wholeheartedly aspire to. And so I started working with groups of women leaders who were diverse in every way, except that they were all committed change makers. And I learned a great deal about leadership and about convening diverse groups of people. And then my inquiry really led me into racial and social justice. I had a whole series of kind of breakthrough ahas where I realized how many advantages I had received and normalized because of growing up with white skin. And I realized, began to observe all kinds of similarities between racial equity and gender equity issues and how privilege gives us blinders and how hard it is sometimes to peel away those blinders so that we can see each other as whole human beings with empathy and compassion and uh, relate to each other's stories, which I think is one of the most important things that needs to happen around the world right now. So yeah, it's been quite a journey, you know, and I've, I've delved into meditation and different practices. I've had a lot of mentors who were Native American people and First Nations peoples and indigenous people from all over the world, actually. And so I feel very, very lucky for that because it's helped remind me who I really am underneath all this, you know, habituated cultural stuff. Mm, this beautiful so much to unpack there and I think maybe we can start with the leadership of women and you talk about the leadership of women holding the greatest promise for our collective future and for living lives with meaning and fulfillment and joy so can you unpack that a little bit more for us sure well in recent years I have to say that in addition to being deeply committed to the leadership of women I'm equally committed to rebalancing the feminine and the masculine within us all, regardless of what gendered body we may happen to be in right now. And so I would say this as much for people in a male body as for people in a female body. I do believe that the archetypal feminine, the yin, if you will, or the receptive, has qualities of relational intelligence and has access to many more ways of knowing than many of our cultures have lauded and taught us to appreciate. And I think to survive the turbulence of this time that we're in and the coming years, we need to be able to access all of our ways of knowing in a model that I call in my book, full spectrum leadership. And it really means being able to draw from all of our human capacities, regardless of whether they're deemed masculine or feminine, and from all of our ways of knowing, including our intuition and our body wisdom and our hearts knowing, because I think we have elevated the intellect to a point that it tends to cancel out the other three. And we need all of our ways of knowing to survive this time in a good way and to remember how to be awake and kind and loving with each other in a time of so much polarization and violence. 
Absolutely. And so what do you kind of suggest for people to want to start living that way, especially as you've just said, we really are living in such a polarized world and it can be so violent, both verbally and just everything that's happening on the physical level. So what can people actually do to sort of implement that and, and become that type of leader and become that type of person in their in their community? Well, you know, one of the simplest ways that I could put it, Steph, is to say that Carl Jung associated the inner with the feminine and the outer with the masculine. And if we all, regardless of what gender we might currently be, seek to reclaim a balance of feminine and masculine within ourselves, of receptive and active, then the first thing that I would say is turn some attention to our inner worlds. I think we really have to go inside and recognize that the violence that we're seeing out there in the world, the judgmentalism, the critique, the tendency to blame, all of that has corollaries within our inner worlds. And the kinder we can become towards ourselves, the kinder we will be towards each other and the earth. And also practice reaching across divides. Practice connecting with people who don't look like us and doing so in a respectful and humble and compassionate way, because most of the places around the world right now are riddled with hierarchy and ranking in ways that are damaging a lot of people. And um, I certainly care about alleviating suffering in the world, and that's one of the practices that I think is critical in this time, you know? We have a, a wonderful African-American scholar on our board named John Powell, and he's brilliant and amazing, and you can see him on the Bioneers site. But he talks about how when demographics are changing too rapidly for our psyches to adjust to, people have a tendency to go one of two ways. They either break and they other, and they push away anybody who seems different than them, or they bridge. And bridging requires a conscious effort to say, okay, who are you? How do I reach across this false separation to understand our common humanity and to make common cause? Because really, we're not going to have environmental health until we have social health and social equity. And the two are completely interdependent, I believe. And so I think we have to practice both. And I think it's totally within our capacities and our wiring to be able to do so. But we have to choose it consciously and practice as often as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing. I think that's really clear and such an important point that it's it's more than just our own mental health and environmental health, but it's how socially and as a collective humanity that we actually interact with each other and they're all so deeply interconnected. So I think that was really beautifully said. Thank you. And you also talk about there's as much cause for hope as horror. <laughs> I read that on, on one of your pieces and I think it's a really true point and it's so easy to fall into eco-anxiety or apathy or ignorance in the wake of what we're all facing. So how do you sort of help to guide people into the hope over horror? Because we are bombarded with a lot of horror. Oh, we certainly are, and it seems to be increasing. I think, for one thing, we have to be choosing very consciously where we're putting our attention. 
because the mainstream media all over the world right now is exploding with horror. <laughs> and the truth is that there is a new civilization being born at the same time as the old one is imploding. But in order to find it, we have to be paying attention. And some of that, I think, involves stilling our minds and actually practicing. I practice something called relational mindfulness, which I love, which is a sitting practice, and it's very simple. But it gives me sort of a, a place of calm within myself so that whatever's happening outside, I can remember my own stillness and my own connection to something larger. But also, I mean, I'm fortunate, Steph, in that I have chosen a line of work, as have you, that connects you with people that are full of ideas and hope and vision. And, you know, I mean, at the risk of sounding self-promotional, I would suggest that listeners go check out Bioneers.org because what you'll find there is amazing radio series and podcasts and videos and articles and a newsletter, all of which is full of amazing ideas and innovation. And so what we're all about really is identifying, it's sort of an environmental and social star search. And we identify really promising, practical innovations that people have already proven that can be scaled. And that if you want to be inspired, see what's out there because it's not on the mainstream media and it is available, but you have to look for it and you have to choose it. And then you find ways to ally yourself with people in your community who care about similar stuff. And then you have a real support system. And all of that, that combination of, you know, attention practice and acting on behalf of what you care about and mobilizing in community, I think is the greatest cure for despair ever. Yes, mobilizing in community is is such a vital part. And I just loved everything that you shared. I think I have a friend that talks about changing your life algorithms. And sometimes, you know, we just need to change the algorithms that we have on social media, but also in our general life, like our attention, what we're, what we're engaging in. And if you engage in a different way, then you kind of start to rewire how you think and like that input all helps. So I think, yes, it's great to find resources like everything that you have on, on Bioneers. And so what are some of these practical innovations and the solutions that already exist that you guys share that you're really excited about? that continue to give you that hope for the future? Well, you know, one that I especially love is called biomimicry. And biomimicry is actually learning from nature how to redesign and, and reinvent human civilization in ways that don't sacrifice our future. And so, for example, there's a wonderful story about a bullet train in Japan that was going through a tunnel that went through a mountain. And when it went through the tunnel, all of the houses on the mountain shook from the vibration of the train going into that place of different pressure. And there was a man there, an engineer, who was an ornithologist. He was a bird watcher. And he said, okay, what bird in nature is designed so that it can cut through different pressure systems without making a big splash. And he realized the kingfisher is the bird that dives into the water with its long beak 
and makes hardly a splash in order to fish. And so they modeled the front of the train on the kingfisher's beak, and it resolved the sonic boom. And suddenly everyone who lived on that mountain could sleep again. So there's an example, right? I mean, it's so interesting because the solutions that reside in nature so far surpass our imagining of what's even possible. And there are solutions many like that. There's a, a glass company that has mimicked the way that spider webs refract light so that birds don't fly into them. And each year, billions of birds die by flying into windows. So this window company has mimicked what the spider web does in their glass, in their window glass, and they're eliminating birds flying into windows. You know, so we can reinvent all of human civilization in point of fact. And there's a lot of reinvention to do, which is part of the exciting thing about being alive in this time is that leadership is needed in every direction. And I think leadership is really about serving what you most love and want to protect or defend. And so just continuing on, on the leadership side. So you've shared, obviously, it's important for us to do the internal work, be kind to ourselves, and therefore we're able to be kinder externally as well. And now that, um, you know, what you just shared as well, but what are some practical, other practical steps that people can do to sort of be the leaders that we need to help to evolve civilization in the way that we actually need to happen? Because we are running out of time, but we don't, you know, we still want there to be practical actions that people feel like they can take that's going to make a difference. Well, and I think there's an interesting dichotomy there, Steph, because on the one hand, there is tremendous urgency right now. You're absolutely right. And yet, I think it's imperative that we don't act brashly or too fast. I think we actually need to reflect and consider. I think part of leadership is understanding what you most want to serve. And another way to say that is what calls you into leadership? What feels like your purpose? And I think each of us can do that by doing a kind of internal inventory of what do you love? What have you loved as far back as you can remember? And what is it that always gives you joy and never depletes you? And I think in this time of reinventing leadership, we have to recognize that there is many ways to practice leadership as there are to live as a human being. So for instance, I believe that being a parent is one of the noblest acts of leadership anyone can do. And similarly, being a healer or a caregiver, you know, I think shifting our own internal definitions, but also doing a real internal assessment of what are, you, what are your gifts and talents and where might they meet a need for reinvention in the world. And don't try to do it alone. Part of what I write about in my book a lot is the value of practicing to cultivate ourselves as leaders with others who we love and trust. Because oftentimes, other people can see us much better than we can see ourselves. And we all have so much habitual conditioning to peel away. And frankly, I feel like I'm peeling it away all the time, and I probably will continue to peel it away until the day I die. You know, so, but it's so great to have friends you trust who you can say, what do you think are my greatest gifts? And what do you think I'm really poor at? And is there anything that you've seen me 
both fail at and be good at? And what do you think is worth my paying attention to in this? You know, and we can cultivate each other because you begin to realize how much we have in common in terms of getting all those obstacles out of our way to be able to really shine for what we were born to be. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's some great practical steps there. And I love the idea of, you know, having your friends and the people that are close to you be able to sort of mirror back some of that, because as you said, sometimes we just don't see it and we've just got all these blind yeah. spots, but sometimes, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful thing to ask for help from the ones that you love and, and to kind of work through stuff together. I feel very blessed to have good friends that are on a similar journey to me and we're always sort of checking in and supporting each other. And, and also I think just yeah. helping each other to celebrate those happy moments and the achievements yes. and not, yes. you know, just, as you said, like blindly going through life, but really taking stock, having those moments going slower and yeah, it, it's can be hard in fast paced world that we live in. But when, when we have those moments to slow down, it it's, it's actually really restorative. And I think we can do so much more. Yeah but having moments of pause, which kind of goes against what you think naturally, or at least what we've been conditioned to think from society. Well, but that's right. I mean, I think, I think we are all products of cultures that tend to be deficit focused. You know, we tend to be self-critical and self-judgmental, and we often don't know how to receive compliments, and we don't know really how to celebrate or really digest the goodness when we achieve something good. And it's so important because that's how we regenerate. And honestly, I think we have to be oriented towards the long haul here because we're moving through a time of difficulty and challenge and also a time of tremendous opportunity. And there's something so beautiful about choosing to stay awake in each day of your life. You know, I love the title of this podcast. Thank you. It's beautiful. Yeah. So I'm curious because obviously we've both grown up in the West and you said that you've had a lot of interaction and um, worked with a lot of different cultures and different tribes and, and people. So how did that compare? What were some of the big lessons that you were able to learn or, you know, I guess integrate or help to spread the word of, or I'm, I'm not sure how you sort of did it, but sort of bring those learnings and how they, they operate in a different way? Well, I write about a lot of it in my book because I really felt like it was some of the hardest lessons I've ever experienced. And whatever I could glean and learn from them, I wanted to share as practical tools for others. You know, I learned that even though, Steph, I grew up believing that I was on the right side of equity and justice and certainly racial equity and justice issues, it wasn't until at least halfway through my life, that I began to realize how much I had taken for granted. And I describe in the book a situation where I was at a retreat site in the countryside, far away from any health care. And a woman who came to do the retreat with us announced when she arrived that she had asthma and she had forgotten her inhaler. And I didn't know very much about asthma. I knew that wasn't a good thing, but I didn't know how serious it could be. And on the last night of the retreat, after six days of coming to really admire and respect this woman just immensely, in the middle of the night, I was awoken because she was having an asthma attack. 
And what I learned, I went through a whole series of steps about how to help her. And at the end of which, her breathing calmed, and I saw that she was going to be okay. And I sank down to the floor next to her bed, and I had tears streaming down my face. And what I realized, Steph, was that for all the years that I had known about the increased rates of heart disease and cancer in marginalized communities where the most toxic industries often are cited, even though I had known about that for all these years, I had known about it from the distance that my privilege afforded me. And I had known about it as concepts in my head. And this experience with this woman in the middle of the night just pierced my heart. And I saw that as a person with the privileges of white skin, I had intellectualized my understanding in a way that felt separate from my heart and my feeling. And that changed me, that experience, forevermore. And I, I actually, many of the essays in the book are things that I wrote to share at a Bioneers conference. So there are videotapes of them online, and there's a videotape of that talk. And I remember that before I gave that talk, I was terrified. I was more scared than any public talk I've ever given. And some of that fear I could trace to a rational potential explanation. I thought, maybe I'm fearful that I'm going to make things worse or that I'm going to offend people. But actually what I found is truer is that there is such deep conditioning in me as a person with white skin to not talk about race. It was an irrational fear. It was like a fear that lived in my marrow. And so that was interesting. And so I talk about it as often as I can. And since giving that talk, I've had a large number of people of color and women of color tell me that they decided that I was trustworthy after hearing that talk. So that's a little bit that I can share. There's lots more practical stuff in the book about how to convene diverse groups and do it in a way that has the best chance of creating a sense of connection and, and beloved community. And it's a skill that I, I hope many, many of us will be practicing in the years ahead. Because part of what doesn't get talked about a lot, Steph, people talk about how hard it is to tackle race, but not that many people talk about the sweetness, the beauty of being in a mixed group that has really accepted and found each other. It's, it's, it's a quality that is not like anything else. And having experienced it, I find I just want to create more and more and more and help other people do the same. Yeah, that's incredible. So if you could like wave a magic wand and change one thing at a global scale, what would you do? Well, I think that I would somehow magically erase thousands of years of patriarchy, mm. honestly. Because part of what I didn't say earlier when you asked me about women in leadership is that women have an extraordinary tenacity and capacity to lead. And we're seeing evidence of it all over the world, um, both in governance and in grassroots leadership. 
and in healing and, and, and almost every sector, women are doing extraordinary things. And I've come to believe that part of what makes extraordinary leaders is having endured hardship because, you know, it's like it hones you. It just creates something stronger inside you. And I would love for all the men in the world to believe that they could actually support women in leadership without losing anything themselves, because I think that would change everything in the world very, very quickly. Mm. Absolutely. And how do you think that we can live wide awake? Mm. <laughs> well, by practicing accepting all the parts of ourselves, like by recognizing that our interiority is as important as what we do and that our capacity for deep listening and for meditation and for connecting with the invisible world and the natural world are all really important. I think we could live wide awake by recognizing that everything is a dance of light and shadow and you don't get one without the other. And that doesn't mean that life is terrible. It just means, you know, we have the capacity to navigate through the difficulties. And as most of the major religious traditions have always taught, there is, there is hardship and there is beauty. And there's so much beauty and tenderness and magnificence in this life that for me, living wide awake means celebrating life because it's a lot grander and a lot more mysterious and a lot more unknowable and a lot more magical than most of us get to realize. But I hope more and more of us are awakening to it. Oh, that was so beautiful. I loved it so much. The dance of light and shadow. I think it's it's just so true. And I think the more that we can accept that and just realize the impermanence of life, I think the, the better and the more beautiful it can be as well. So thank you, Nina, so much for sharing with us today on the podcast. I, I really appreciate you. It's such a pleasure, Steph. Thanks for having me. And can I add one more thing? My husband has recently finished a 10-part film series that's available for streaming. And it contains many, many of the kinds of ideas and images that we've talked about. But also, it's got this amazing history of social movements, juxtaposed with history of astrology, if you can believe it or not. Wow. It's called, it's wild. It's called Changing of the Gods. And I think your listeners might love it. So easy to look it up. Yes. Beautiful. Changing of the Gods. Thank you so much. <laughs> of course. And I'll send you a link for a discount to our Bioneers Conference. And just to encourage people to visit the website. And if they go to bioneers.org slash NCS book, they can download a free introduction to the book. So fantastic. Offering that Wonderful. too. Thanks so much, Steph. Three things I'm taking away from this conversation with Nina. Firstly, nature has so many miraculous solutions that we can be inspired by and model from to build a better world. 
Secondly, to reclaim and rebalance the feminine and masculine, we have to go inside. We've got to do the inquiry. We've got to be kind and loving to ourselves so that we can be kind and loving to others and our mother. Thirdly, everything is a dance of light and shadow. Yes, there is and will be hardships, but there's also an abundance of joy and beauty. And we can choose what we focus on and where we put our attention. curious what did you think about the episode and what were your main takeaways is there a topic you want me to dive deeper into i'd love to hear from you you can find me at steph l dixon or at live wide awake if you got something out of the podcast and you want to continue this journey with us consider subscribing and supporting i hope that today's conversation stirred something deep within you ready to awaken and until next time live wide awake